This podcast was recorded on Bunurong Bunurong country. I pay my respect to elders past and present. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been stewards of the land, sea and sky for over 60,000 years. I would like to thank them for their continued contribution to science, conservation and education. Welcome to Weekend Birder. I'm your host, Kirsty Costa, and I'm a teacher, science communicator, and conservationist. Today, fellow birders, we are going to hear Anthony Overs share his stories and expertise. Anthony and I are sitting in the stunning surrounds of the Australian National Botanic Gardens on Ngunnawal Country in Canberra. Around us, we can hear wattlebirds, currawongs, robins, and tree creepers, and all the other noises that you hear when you're in a public space. Anthony has always been curious about nature. In fact, as a little kid, he had a fascination for all living things. I, I couldn't get enough of it. And I used to watch the shows on TV, like Harry Butler's In the Wild. You know, we're talking in the, in the late 70s here. And members of my family used to call me the next Harry Butler because I'd tell them all about this thing or that thing. Um, and then birds came along and they were fascinating. You know, being able to sit in the front garden and watch superb fairy wrens breeding in the raspberry bush or a goshawk turned up in the yard and it was a white morph grey goshawk and I didn't know what it was at the time but I knew it was a hawk and it was pure white and had a yellow bit on its on its on its beak and I know what it is now but I was fascinated at, at the time and I learned a lot about wildlife when I was a kid and I took took to that um through school and, and university. Um, studied wildlife at university, environmental management, wildlife management, and became quite proficient at um, identifying things in the wild. Anthony is a member of the Canberra Ornithologist Group, and one of his talents is to help people begin their birdwatching journey. I really get a lot out of the natural environment. It's almost like a, a religion, and it's... it's, it's uh, wholesome it's good for you it's it's good for your well-being and I like to share that with others and I've been doing that I've been doing that for the last few years with the Canberra Ornithologist group here teaching people about birds there's certain ways that you can do it you can belt them over the head with facts and overwhelm them with bird calls and all that sort of stuff but doing it by little bits and pieces and engaging them in in subtle ways they almost don't know that they're they're learning, but they actually are. I've been travelling with, with people who weren't into birds and uh, they ended up becoming interested in what I was seeing. I said, I said look, I'm, I've got a morning off here. I'm going bird watching with a local guide. And I got back and they said, what would you see? What would you see? Tell us all about it. So they're actually quite interested, but they don't know enough about it. I've been doing this for 30, 35 years and I still know... You know, a very small percentage or fraction of of uh, what what I should know. So incremental, little bits and pieces, and 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 don't overwhelm people. People get frightened off if you want to tell them the whole history of the evolution of of the Australian avifauna. <laughs> One of the trickiest things to navigate as a beginner birder is choosing and then using binoculars. They are such an awesome tool and give your eyes long distance superpowers. But what do all the numbers mean? What are the best brands and how much money should I spend? 
And how the heck do I use them quickly when I see a bird? Thankfully, Anthony is here to answer all of these questions. People come to the beginner's walks here with me and they, they bring all sorts of different binoculars that they've inherited or, or found or stolen or acquired somehow. And they ask, what, what, what should I buy in order to be able to do this bird watching thing? Well, there's a tree creeper calling in the background. Years ago, you had to spend a fair bit of money to get something of reasonable quality. But nowadays you don't have to do that. You don't have to spend $3,000 on a set of binoculars. You can spend $300 on a perfectly serviceable pair. But you do get what you pay for. So if you can afford to spend more, um, do it. If you can afford to spend $700, you'll get a much better pair. The lens coatings will degrade on the cheap ones. Prisms will go out of alignment. But $3,000 is a lot of money. So when I have beginners here at the gardens on a, on a walk and they're asking about binoculars, they want to know about the numbers on the binoculars and what they should acquire. So we'll quickly cover the tech talk. Binoculars are identified by their magnification and the diameter of the objective lens. So the first number is the, the magnification that's anywhere between 7 and 10. And the objective lens diameter is the second number. So if a binocular set says 10 by 42, it's 10 times magnification and 42 millimeter diameter of the objective lens. Now, the higher the magnification, the closer you get to your bird target, but you have a smaller field of view. And the smaller the objective lens, the smaller the field of view. So the field of view is measured uh, if you look at the the, uh, the details on a, on a website, it'll say 100 metres at 1,000 metres. So at 1,000 metres distance, the field of view you're looking at is 100 metres wide. So we want a big field of view, and a bigger lens means more light gathering capacity. So if you've got a 10 times magnification and a 25mm objective lens, you're getting very close, but you've got a very narrow field of view and poor light gathering capability. Okay, 8 by 42 or 8 times 42 or 10 by 42, lock that into your bird watching memory when choosing a pair of binoculars. Binoculars that are lightweight might be convenient to shove in your pocket, but most won't give you the best view of birds. In fact, when your binoculars aren't strong enough, you have to move too close to the bird and you'll scare it away. I've heard people giving up on bird watching just because of their binoculars. It's not worth the hassle. So jump on your favourite secondhand website or save up some cash to buy yourself a decent pair. Binoculars with a greater magnification can be larger and heavier, but there is a way to protect your neck. Now my 10 by 42 binoculars are 860 grams. Now that's a lot of weight hanging around your neck for even half an hour. Um, if you wear them all day, you'll end up with a sore neck, but they are the best binoculars that you can buy. So we use a, a harness, a very straightforward elastic harness with clips at the front, you clip your binoculars on and it disperses the weight of the binoculars across your shoulders rather than around your neck. Uh, and they're about $50 to buy on multi, you know, multiple suppliers on eBay. Um, and that's the way to go and you, you barely notice that they're there. Um, and I've connected my 
camera to the same strap as well as the binoculars and it's so comfortable you, you barely notice it that you've got it on. I've got a dodgy neck so I wear a backpack with a chest strap and a waist strap. When I'm not using my binoculars I actually tuck them into my waist strap and then I tighten it so they're not swinging around while I walk and my hips are actually taking the weight. It's been a total neck saver and is another option if you don't want to use a harness. How to use binoculars? Well, believe it or not, there is a way of using them and a way of not using them. I've watched people look at a bird in the, in the bush, in a tree, 20 metres away, put the binoculars to their face and then start scanning the tree because they can't find the bird. And the key point here is you must maintain the line of sight. So you, you see the bird with your eye, you're looking at it, you put the binoculars in that line of sight. You do not adjust your head to fit the binoculars as they come up to your face. You simply put the binoculars in that line of sight and you will see that bird every time. Now one of the field guides suggests having a practice, and I, I recommend this too, put an object down the back of the back of the yard and have a go at looking at it first time. And when we're talking about a seven gram thornbill that's 10 centimetres long and flitting through a tree or a shrub, your, your chances of seeing it after you've broken that line of sight are very slim. And yeah, the seek and you see our find method of, of, of trying to find that bird is not going to work. Ah, gotcha. Well, it looks like I've got some practicing to do. So what are the best conditions for bird watching? Anthony says it's important to think about weather, time of day and lighting. I think the first thing you have to take into account is your comfort. Um, birds aren't really active when it's pouring rain or howling gale and nobody enjoys being out in that. So uh, pick your time. And further to uh, picking your time, birds are generally quite active in the first part of the day as they go about finding food. And on a blazing hot summer day, that period is reduced to two to three hours after sunrise and maybe an hour before sunset. So in the heat of the day, nothing's around. In the middle of winter, birds are active much more. Food is a bit more scarce. And something like an eastern spinebill will have to feed enough during the day to get it through the night. Um, that's the, the amount of energy required to, to survive a, a minus five Canberra morning. The next key point is getting the light right on the bird. If you have the bird in between you and the light source, the sun, you're going to see a silhouette and that's not really a lot to go on in terms of identifying a bird. You can still get a general impression of its size and shape, but you won't be able to distinguish colours any patterns like barring or striping or any other distinguishing features. So try to keep the sun behind you and if you do see something you want to have a quick look at, try to get into the best location you can without disturbing the bird. And that's easier said than done. I found in my experience if you directly approach a bird it will disappear. So you can approach a bird on an angle in a zigzag pattern and don't look at it. 
that way it doesn't think you're a threat and you can change your position and get the light behind you and get a good look at it. Anthony says we need to slow down to encounter birds. Take our time, stop and listen. It's important to look behind you too because you never know what might hop or fly across the path behind you when you're not watching. Keep the noise down. A quiet approach is less likely to disturb the birds. And if you're with a group of people, keep your chatting to a minimum so you can see as much as you can. You won't be walking far when you're bird watching. This is not an exercise for bushwalkers. We've been out on certain woodland bird watching outings and have gone 300 metres in an hour. <laughs> there are lots of places to go bird watching in Canberra, and Anthony says that groups like the Canberra Ornithologist Group are here to help. Canberra Ornithologist Group, Cog, has been around for a long time. We have a, a large membership for a reasonably small city. We have a high population of uh, scientific professionals students at the universities and they're all members um, we have a substantial member base cog runs monthly meetings with guest speakers and the quality of those guest speakers is very high because of those people that are in this town so it's not unusual for somebody like um, the curator of the australian national wildlife collection at csiro to come and talk to the to the group every now and again cog is very active in conservation advocacy and runs multiple survey projects. We publish a monthly newsletter and a journal a couple of times a year. The journal features odd observations and several peer-reviewed articles. I think the key thing that I'm pleased about with Colgate is the outings program. We run an outing every week in spring and summer and at least two a month during winter. And outings can run from a three-hour morning trip to a four-day camp out on a private property and everything in between. And we also run pelagic trips off Eden. Anthony and his team make sure that beginners learn as they go along. Total legends. Aren't we lucky to have so many birdwatchers out there that are also happy to help others learn? As a teacher, they get a huge tick in my book. We will pair you up with somebody experienced on an outing so that they can help you learn. Yeah, there's nothing worse than going on an outing and everybody knows what they're looking at and identifying everything and you're just standing at the back saying, oh yeah, okay. So it's good to be included. Many of us as leaders make the point of making sure that beginners learn as they go along. I think the key piece of advice I could provide is to go birding with people that know what they're doing and what they're looking at. I've experienced people trying to learn calls with CDs or cassettes or using apps on their phone, but there's nothing quite like having a person point out the distinguishing features of a bird and the calls that it's making so that you learn. Many thanks to Anthony Overs for persevering through some pretty challenging recording conditions to share his birdwashing passion and advice with us. And many thanks to the Australian National Botanic Gardens in Canberra for everything that you do and for hosting our visit. You can access the transcript for this episode and the latest news at weekendbirder.com. You'll also find links to our social media accounts to learn more about our guests. Oh, and if you've got a minute, you can also subscribe to Weekend Birder and leave your review via your favourite podcast service.